to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode. Today, we be sipping on another Pride Coffee Roaster. This coffee comes from Uncommon Coffee Roasters, which is a queer-owned coffee roaster in, oh gosh, us in names, I swear to goodness, Saugatuck, Michigan. Michigan. Why are you coming at us with these names? I know. I'll tell you how to pronounce it. <laughs> Sagatuck. You did it! I did it! We are drinking the very cleverly named Pride Blend. Uncommon Coffee Roasters says that they take pride in offering a safe space for the LGBTQ plus community to gather at their cafes. They also donate monthly to the Alley Forney Center, which was founded in 2002 in response to the lack of safe and culturally competent shelters for LGBTQ plus youth in New York City. Yeah, wonderful company, great stance, and I, I love to say it, great coffee. Really good. <laughs> Round of I applause. I say it, I really do. No, I love to say <laughs> it. I really like that they the shit promote slaps. their um, coffee shops as like a safe, safe space. space. Yeah, me That's too. Awesome. And honestly, if I'm ever in Michigan, I'm going. I like this coffee. Let's go. Shayna, let's go to Michigan. <laughs> Shayna, we're going to Michigan. <laughs> Visit your family. All right. So welcome back to part two of our Pride Week episodes. So my episode's a little different. It's focusing on two individuals or two cases that came together and kind of changed our country for oh really those affected by hate crimes. Yeah. Wow, this yeah. is good. Yeah, so we're going to talk about two men, and before she starts her case, I just want to say thank you so much for continuing to support our podcast. It means so much, and just keep it the frick up. Yes, thank you so much. I keep sharing us like on your stories or like DMing stuff to friends, telling your friends about it, telling your coworkers about it, telling your family about it, tell your hairdresser about it, tell your Dog walker. Dog walk everyone. Your grocery store ladies, your deli counter people. Just literally anyone you see on the street. It helps so much, and we really appreciate you guys. Screen it from the mountaintops, people. Crime on caffeine. Put us on blast. All right. So, Matthew Wayne Shepard was born on December 1st, 1976 in Casper, Wyoming, to Judy and Dennis Shepard. He also had a younger brother he was very close to. His name was Logan. He was born in 1981, so they were like five years apart. So, as a child, Matthew was described as being a sensitive, soft-spoken, kind young boy. He was super nice to all of his classmates, but he was bullied a lot just because he was, like, really, really tiny. And he was also teased for not being athletic. He didn't play any sports. He was really small, didn't care about him, but he was really interested in politics. He developed a strong interest in politics, like, at a really young age. Cool. And so from then, that was like what he wanted to do with his life. His father described him as an optimistic and accepting young man who had a special gift of relating to almost everyone. He was the type of person who was very approachable and always looked to new challenges. He had a great passion for equality and always stood up for the acceptance of people's differences. An angel. An angel. So he went to public school in Casper until up until his junior year of high school, um, which was like 1994, when his family moved to Saudi Arabia. His Saudi Arabia, yeah. His wow. dad worked in oil safety engineering. Very smart family. Yeah, no, they were wow. very smart family. They were pretty well off. They had a good thing going. So he completed high school at the American School in Switzerland. While he was there, he studied German, Italian, theater. He loved music and fashion. 
And then his senior year, he went to Morocco with a bunch of his friends. It was like senior year trip. And on this trip, Matthew was mugged, raped, and beaten by a gang of locals. Oh, my God. People think that they just might have gone after him because, like, he's really tiny, so he was kind of, like, an easier target. He At this point, so he was a senior in high school, he was 5'2 and 100 pounds. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah he was little. Um, and the people who did this were never caught. But this messed him up, which, I mean, like, it would mess anyone of course. up. So he started going to therapy, but he was still really messed up from it. He was constantly having, like, flashbacks to the trauma. He was having panic attacks, nightmares, everything. Um, he then went on to experience depression, paranoia, anxiety, and suicidal ideation for the rest of his life. He was hospitalized a few times for this, and his friend said that the trauma that he went through most likely contributed to his avid drug abuse in college because, yeah, I mean, obviously he didn't start until he went to college, which was all after this while he was dealing with that. So kind of makes sense just because of where his mind was at. Right. So he went on to study theater at Catawba College in North Carolina for a little bit. And after, once he started college, he also came out to his mother, but she was like, yeah, I've known forever. We good. We good. Like his family loved and accepted him. Like I love that. Yeah, it was great. He then moved to Raleigh for a brief period of time only to move back home and attend community college at Casper College. When he was there, he met Romaine Patterson and they became really good friends and they ended up moving to Denver, Colorado together for a little. He didn't go to school there or anything. He just worked a bunch of part-time jobs. And then in 1998, he moved back to Wyoming and he went to the University of Wyoming. That's where his parents went, actually. Oh, a little legacy moment. Yeah, a little legacy moment. The University of Wyoming was in Laramie, Wyoming, and this was a really small town. And he wanted to go there because he thought that it would make him feel safer just to be somewhere smaller. Obviously, Denver is very big. But that's what he said. He figured living in a small town would help him feel safe. He was a 21-year-old freshman and decided to study political science and international relations with hopes of pursuing a foreign service career. So, like, this dude was badass, and he was smart. I was about to say, Like, he could have done some things. It's so upsetting. He was super active on his campus. He was described as polite, thoughtful, a great conversationalist. He joined the LGBT Student Alliance there. He was super involved. Um, And then on October 6, 1998, he was meeting with his other friends that were a part of the LGBT Student Alliance as well. And after he wanted everybody to go to the fireside lounge to get a drink, but nobody really felt like it. I think it was like during the week and they were all just like, no, I'm going home. But he still wanted to go. So he went. He was just chilling, drinking a beer. Okay. And he started chatting with these two men. They were the same age as him and they were like roofers. We know about that in this house. <laughs> yes, you do. My husband's what a you, roofing what, estimator. Oh, okay. A roofing estimator. There we yeah, go. They could have been es- estimators. Yeah. They were working on some roofs. So their names were Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney. He was there like really late. So it was like past midnight now. So it was October 7th the next day. And he was going home and the guys were like, oh, we can take you home. They get in the car and they pull a gun on Matthew. They force him to pull out his wallet and he only had $20 in it. So I don't really know. There had been words about this spoken by certain people, but it's never been like proven Mm -hmm. that they were looking for drugs. Oh, okay. Yeah. But not all roofers do that, by the way. Just want to disclaim that. 
Thank you. They drove to a remote rural area where Henderson tied him to a fence with a clothesline and McKinney pistol whipped him and they stole his shoes and left him to die because it was like near freezing temperatures outside. Oh my God. Yeah. So he was left there for 18 hours. Get out. In the freezing cold. The medical examiner found that he was struck with the gun in like his head and his face between 19 and 21 times. That's how many times Aaron McKinney pistol whipped him. Well, no, sorry. I'm processing. Oh my gosh. I also forgot to mention that he's not dead. So he is in the hospital. He's like unconscious. He's in a coma for five days. Oh my God. His brainstem was crushed. So your brainstem, he couldn't regulate his heartbeat, his body temperature, nothing like his skull was fractured four times. Then, like I said, he was unconscious for five days before he died on October 12th. He was 21 years old. That's devastating. 21. So, so devastating. Especially this kid just had like, oh, such, such a, a bright such future. Such a bright future. He was so smart. And just like a good person from a good family. He wanted to like, change things. He wanted to do things. So a couple things about this hospital visit. It was here right before he died that his parents actually learned that he was HIV positive. So I don't know if he knew. So that must have been heartbreaking on top of everything that was going on. They said that his face was so bloody. The entire thing was covered except for tear streaks. I literally cried at that. Like, stop. I know. So oddly enough, he was actually in a hospital bed down the hall from Aaron McKinney. Mr. Pistol Whip, because after they left him to die, they went back to that bar, the Fireside Lounge, and they got in a fight with two, I think they were like teenagers, and he had a hairline fracture from the fight that he got in. That was just a couple hours after he thought that he killed Matthew. He said, let's go go back to the bar. The police arrived at the scene of the fight and arrested Henderson, and then they searched McKinney's car only to find the bloody gun, Matthew's shoes, and the credit card. So, like, things were happening fast that night. Yeah, Yeah. that was quick. Thank God. I'm glad that these guys are stupid. According to Albany County Sheriff Officer Dave O'Malley, Henderson and McKinney came up with a plan while at Fireside to pretend to be gay and rob Matthew. That's so... Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to come at someone with a hate Mm. crime, there's where you lose your defense. He said that the only time he'd ever seen that dramatic of injuries were in high-speed traffic crashes. He said, you know, where there was just extremely violent compression fractures to the skull. Like, he'd only seen that in, like, the worst car accidents he'd ever seen. A teenager was riding a mountain bike, and he saw his body, and he thought it was a scarecrow that was out for Halloween, literally. Oh, my it was God. Like, he was hanging from the fence still. Um, so he called 911, and Officer Reggie Flutie was at the scene. Initially, McKinney and Henderson were charged with attempted murder, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. But as we just discussed, Matthew died, and the charges were then up to first-degree murder, making them eligible for the death penalty. And death on death penalty. (laughs) They tried to get their girlfriends to cover their alibis, and the girlfriends ended up being charged as accessories because they were lying. Detective Ben Fritzen testified that Kristen Price, who was Aaron McKinney's girlfriend, Uh, She said that McKinney said that the violence towards Matthew stemmed from how he, quote, felt about gays. Like, he literally admitted that to her. So, I think it's pretty clear that, like... very clear. McKinney, yeah. And I think McKinney was kind of, like, the ringleader. And Henderson was just kind of, like, the, I'm going to go with you and do what you say kind of thing. Like, kind of, like, the submissive one. 
McKinney even was the one who told Henderson to tie Matthew up, you know? So I think he was calling the shots here. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that he's innocent. They are both equal halves to this disgusting hole. And in April 1999, Henderson ended up cutting a deal and ended up pleading guilty in exchange for two life sentences instead of the death penalty. And he had to testify against McKinney. He tried to say it wasn't because Matthew was gay. Okay, maybe not to you, but to someone else, I think it was. I... Pretty sure. Yeah. So then in October and November of that year, it was McKinney's trial. The defense tried to use gay panic as McKinney's defense. So they were saying that Matthew basically assaulted him because he was hitting on him, like touched his knee or something, which caused McKinney to go temporarily insane and kill him. And they called this gay panic. They were saying that like he literally went insane because of this. No, that's not real. That's not a thing. It's not a thing. Literally, I read that. I was like, are you kidding me? It's like, if you touch my leg right now, I'm like, ah. And then you go psychotic and you kill me. What? I'm so mad. I know. It's like I'm seething. I know. That's not a real thing. No, it's not. The prosecutor said to the press, this defense is atrocious. It should not be used in any court in the United States. It gives people an excuse to harm another person. Exactly. Literally. And the judge agreed and dismissed the defense. He also tried to argue that they definitely meant to rob him, but never meant to kill him. And the prosecution argued that it was premeditated. It was driven by greed and violence. McKinney's girlfriend testified that they did pretend to be gay to gain Matthew's trust so that they could get him to the truck and rob him. McKinney was found not guilty of first-degree premeditated murder, but guilty of felony murder. So they were going along with, like, the we meant to rob him, but we didn't mean to kill him. In which case, I don't know what it is in... Wyoming, but I guess this robbery charge would have been a felony. So felony murder is when you commit a felony and then someone dies as a result of you committing that felony. Like you didn't purposely kill them. I don't agree. They No, I don't agree either, but that's what that is. But then they went on to deliberate whether or not he should get the death penalty anyway. His parents decided that they, this is like, just, I, you okay? His Matthew Shepard's parents, I commend them. I just, I don't think that I could ever be half the people that I, they decided to make a deal saying that they didn't want to add another killing to the tragedy. So he was spared the death penalty and he was given two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Wow. Dennis Shepard said, I would like nothing better than to see you die, Mr. McKinney. However, this is the time to begin the healing process. To show mercy to someone who refused to show any mercy. Mr. McKinney, I'm going to grant you life as hard as it is for me to do so because of Matthew. And the prosecutor said, I will never get over Judy Shepard's capacity to forgive. I, I won't either. I know. That, I mean, that's really big of them. Huge. They were incarcerated in the Wyoming State Penitentiary. And they were later transferred to several different prisons due to overcrowding. I think they're chilling because they're in there for two lives. Two lives. Two lives. So obviously this case got a lot of public attention, Mm -hmm. mixed attention. This was kind of when the internet was like becoming a thing. This case gained a lot of national attention in ways both good and bad. People around the country were holding little like memorials and stuff for Matthew. Like even before he passed and was just in the hospital. So like people were kind of coming together and being super supportive and kind and just trying to be there for Mr. and Mrs. Shepard. So that was really nice. That is then nice. there were also people like Reverend 
Fred Phelps and his squad over at the Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas, who literally picketed outside of his funeral, waving signs that were saying like Matthew and hell, they were the ones that began the whole God hates Efsler. So they had those signs. That's like when that started. That's what started that movement with that saying. A church? I mean, they're the ones that are always picketing with those signs, but they did this outside of his funeral. I am, oh, I'm mad. I'm very mad. Yeah. Disgusting. They, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. It's like, not today. Nope. Holy. His parents are sitting there watching their murdered child. Not only do they have the audacity. Well, like right in your diary or something. The audacity to do, to even be at his funeral. They decide to put the F word there. Y'all made a choice. A bad choices. Choices. Remember his friend Romaine, the one that he lived in Denver with? Yes. Wait, stop. So she assembled groups that would, they were dressed as angels and they would have like their angel wings and they would circle around the protesters in an attempt to shield um, Matthew's parents from seeing the signs and stuff. And they called it the initiative Angel Action. Stop it right now. I know. She's like an amazing person. She has a whole website, but she's like a really that good person. so sweet. I know. Thank goodness for her. Seriously. And then in December of 1998, Dennis and Judy started the Matthew Shepard Foundation, uh, which is an LGBT nonprofit that, quote, empowers individuals to embrace human dignity and diversity through outreach, advocacy, and resource programs. The initial purpose of the foundation was to teach parents with children who might be questioning their sexuality to love and accept them for who they are and to not, you know, push them away or treat them poorly or, you know, as you shouldn't just how to accept your child. So in the next decade, there would be several hate crime bills put into play because of this, uh, which is going to bring me to our next case, which actually happened the same year as Matthew's death. Wow. Really? Mm hmm. Okay, so now we are going to talk about James Bird Jr. So James Bird Jr. was not a part of the LGBTQ plus community. He was a black man. He was born on May 2nd, 1949 in Beaumont, Texas to Stella and James Bird Sr. He was the third of eight children. Uh, They were super involved with the church. The mom, Stella, was a Sunday school teacher, and James Bird Sr. was a deacon at Greater New Bethel Baptist Church. I wrote church. Church. Yeah, church. Church. James sang in the church choir and he played piano there, so he was really involved too. He was super musical. Love that. Yeah. And then in 1967, he graduated from Jasper Rowe High School as, this is cool, as part of the last segregated class in that school's history. He was super smart. He got like really good grades the whole time. And his parents really wanted him to go to college. Like his two older sisters went, but he decided not to. A few years after graduating, he married and had three children. Their names were Renee, Ross, and Jamie. He was working inconsistently as a vacuum salesman. And he was also struggling with alcoholism at this time. So he was kind of like in and out of employment. So he was living on disability benefits. Mm -hmm. He had an apartment, but he didn't have a car. So he walked everywhere. People around town knew who he was. So over the next around 25-ish years, he was in and out of prison several times just for like little things. And this was going on until 1996. So he and his wife divorced in 93. Then in 1996, he decided to get his life together and he started to go to AA. So... You know, good for him. His family and friends described him as charismatic, musically talented, and generally well-liked. They said he was a great father and a great grandfather. 
And on June 7, 1998, he was 49 at this time. He was walking home from a party with like friends and family. It was like around 2 a.m., I want to say. And three men, Sean Barry, who was 23, Lawrence Russell Brewer, who was 31, and then John King, who was 23, they offered him a ride home. They weren't complete strangers. I think like Bird and Barry knew each other. I'm just from around town, not exactly sure. But instead of driving him home, because, you know, seems to be a pattern here, they drove him to a remote country road outside of town. Trigger warning, just because this is, like, pretty brutal. I don't know, this fucked me up. They beat him. They spray-painted his face black. They urinated and defecated on him. And they chained him to the back of their truck by his ankles. Shut up. Before dragging him for about three miles. Shut. Or actually the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. You cannot defend this. No, I have no words. I really don't. Actually, I have a lot of words. I really have a lot of words to say, but I won't say them. The autopsy revealed that he was alive for the majority of the dragging and he that he probably didn't die until his arm and head were severed when his body hit a culvert. I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Yeah. Almost oh God, all no, of his... I'm literally I know, I know, I know. <laughs> almost all of his ribs were fractured. Where's my water? So the men decided to dump his remains in front of a black church on Huff Creek Road. But then I also read some sources that said they dumped his remains in a segregated black cemetery. So I don't know if, like, the cemetery was what was across from the church or, like, but then they went to a barbecue. Shut the... So I want to talk about these guys for a minute. I don't. Three white supremacists. Clearly. Not that they deserve to be spoken about, but we're going to talk about them. And when I say white supremacists, like, no, they were literally white supremacists. John King was a Klansman who literally had a tattoo of a black man being lynched. Among several other tattoos that represented white supremacy and racism, Brewer was a member of a white supremacist gang as well. He actually joined it with King while they were in prison. It's called the Confederate Knights of America, and they did it to safeguard themselves against other prisoners. They can eat dirt. Yeah. And that is the most G-rated thing I am going to say, because you don't want to hear what I'd like them to eat on my other ratings. I know. So Brewer was sentenced for drug possession and burglary, I want to say in the late 80s, and then he was paroled in 91, but he violated his parole, so he returned in 94. So John King, this might surprise you, but he was adopted into a very loving, happy family. That does surprise me. I know, right? Usually it's not like that. Um, Sadly, his mom died when he was 16. He grew up around black people. Like, he went to school with them. It wasn't like he always had this hatred for them. Like, he was totally fine his whole life. Like, he he knew people from school. It was never an issue. Uh, His family said that things took a turn junior year when he was arrested for burglary with Sean Barry, who is the other 23-year-old. Okay. So, Sean and John were sent to boot camp, but then John King ended up violating his parole and was sent to prison in 95. So, that's how he and Brewer became friends. His friends testified that they noticed him becoming increasingly racist while he was in prison. Um, He was writing letters to them, and they just said that they were filled with just, like, racist things. In his cell, he had, like, a Klan book. He wasn't just prejudiced against black people either. Other nationalities, ethnicities, religions. Anybody who just wasn't Literally, literally. Yeah, well, a lot of the people that were in this prison were a part of the Aryan Brotherhood. So I'm assuming that's goes along with that. But in one of the letters that he sent to one of his friends back home, he was talking about what he referred to as race traitors. And he said, white women who date blacks are whores. 
they should hang from the same tree as their black boyfriends. Like, what? dude, are you okay? You, clearly not. Are you fucking okay? You're, he's not okay. I just... Oh, this, I don't know how people never, think of like, like I really this never makes sense to me. Like why like in my brain, why I have do you no hate idea how they do that? How do you hate someone so much? One, two, why do you care so much about another person? Three, why is it because of, of their, their skin color? color? Like what? It like it doesn't make sense, but I mean it's just years and years and years and years brainwashing of systemic yeah, yeah like say, so I mean racism. I want to punch this guy right. Uh, yeah, they right were all horrible weird shit. But during this time, John King wanted to make a Jasper chapter of this clan called the Texas Rebel Soldiers. Another inmate, William Matthew Hoover. He was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, like I was talking about. Mm -hmm. He testified that while in prison, King may have been planning an initiation ritual for his new gang that included kidnapping a black man, driving him to the woods, and killing him. Blood in, blood out. You have to spill blood to get in, and you have to give blood to get out. Clearly, what he did was planned. Yeah, that's very much so planned. He was talking about it while he was in jail. He was making a ton of plans for his release, which involved, quote, bashings, which was essentially murdering black men. Okay. He originally planned for July 4th, but as we can see, he did things a little little bit earlier than planned. So this kind of white supremacy behavior was very common in prisons around this time, especially in Texas, because prisons weren't desegregated until like the 1980s. So this was very... Still very fresh to them. Like, that is so crazy to me. The 1980s. I can't even think of that. The 1980s. Like, that was recent. So recent. Former state prison psychologist testified that an attack, which the attack was a gang rape, by black prisoners was what caused this hatred and behavior from John King. My God. He said, my understanding of what turned this person around is that he was attacked. That traumatized him and changed him dramatically. No, stop. Don't go blaming his conscious choices on random men in a jail. Like, I don't care what they did to him. They're not responsible for this. He knows what he's doing. Clearly, all this hate is brewing from somewhere. Like, maybe they made it finally come out. I don't know. But don't go blaming that these men for his personality and his behavior. That's enough about them because I don't feel like talking about them anymore because I hate them. I'd be fine not talking about them for the rest of my life. Same. A driver saw James Bird's remains on the highway. Police found a wrench with Barry's name on it and some of Bird's belongings, like where he was dragged. They found a lighter with the word possum written on it and KKK, of course. Possum was actually King's prison nickname. And oh my God, this this messed me up. They found Bird's belongings in 81 different locations. I'm going to assume that belongings includes like DNA, but 81 different fucking places because that's how long he was dragged for. They stopped Sean Barry for a traffic violation, and the police saw a tool set in his passenger seat that was matching the wrench, which was missing from the tool set that he had. Mm -hmm. So they arrested him, and they took his truck. They found blood spatter in the truck and on the tires that matched James Bird's DNA. They also found a blood stain in the shape of a chain. They determined to also be Bird's, obviously. This led police to their apartment. So Sean... Barry, Lawrence Brewer, and John King all shared an apartment together. Mm -hmm. They found clothes they wore the night of the murder with blood matching Bird's DNA. They found shoes that matched the footprints found at the scenes. They found the bloody chain. 
that they used to tie him to the back of the truck at a friend's house that they would go to to play paintball at. A mess. Yeah, it was a whole mess. Congress actually condemned the killing on record. And it was basically just like saying that they're going to do everything in their power to figure out what happened. Like they don't stand for this, blah, 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 blah. And Barry like confessed to the police. But well, okay. So he, he told them that they picked him up and they like said they were going to drive him home or whatever. They drove to a convenience store and King was super pissed and he was like shouting a bunch of racial slurs and when they left the convenience store he took over the wheel and he ended up driving them to Huff Creek Road heading out of town and he said he was fixing to scare the shit out of this slur and he said he wanted to quote start the Turner Diaries early which we're gonna get into this for a second if you have not heard of this book before you might have heard of it this year actually but It's a 1978 book by neo-Nazi leader William Luther Pierce. He wrote it under like a, what is it? A pseudonym? pseudonym. Yeah, a pseudonym. But in this book, this is really funny. Not funny, but it's just interesting to say it out loud now. It's in this book, a group of white supremacists attack the U.S. Capitol to overthrow the government. You're kidding. No. Whoa. Whoa. Yes. Actually, this book itself has inspired dozens of acts of violence amongst white supremacists. This is like their their Bible. Oh god. There's a few books that they like go based off of, I guess you could say. But they was taken off Amazon, I think, this year. This, like I said, has inspired several acts of violence amongst white supremacists and extremists. Before it had been taken down from Amazon, it literally had a disclaimer identifying it as a racist white supremacist fantasy that inspired domestic terrorism. Okay. Since its release, it has inspired over 40 domestic terrorist acts and hate crimes, including the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Wow. Um, It's been referenced countless times in the last year by white supremacist groups such as the Proud Boys and has inspired more recent hate crimes across the nation. Yeah, that's what he meant when he said, start the Turner Diaries early. So I guess Barry was not trying to be a part of this. You know, it wasn't me, it was them, but like I was just there. And they were like, no, you're just as much a part of it as we are. King said the same thing could happen to a slur lover, almost threatening him, saying, if you don't do this, you're a slur lover and the same thing could happen to you. That is so messed up. Because he was like, kind of not defending him, but he was saying like, no, nah, this isn't cool. Right. But you know, went along with it anyway. But his affidavit was very helpful for the case because it helped to establish probable cause, making it clear from the start to FBI and officers that this was indeed a crime fueled by hate. But then Barry said he lied and recanted the entire statement. John King's trial started in February of 1999. He was found guilty of kidnapping and capital murder and given the death sentence. Russell Brewer was also given the death sentence. A psychiatrist testified, this dude scares me, because, like, we didn't really talk about him that much. Yeah, let me say it. A death on death penalty. I'm sorry. Brewer was also given the death sentence. A psychiatrist testified that he had zero remorse whatsoever. He tried to say he was in his pickup truck, and that bird was already dead, and that Barry slashed his throat with a knife, which was, like, so far from what they found and what Barry said. He was trying to say that he was begging them the whole time to release Bird from the chains. Of course he was. Yeah. The prosecutor was like, well, why is his blood on your shoes? And he just goes, that is a very good question. Shut up. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. He said, said, you got me there. (laughs) I didn't think about that one. Good one. (laughs) He 
also, <laughs> oh, he also tried to say he never wrote violent racist white supremacist notes in prison. The prosecution then proceeded to read the violent racist white supremacist notes that he wrote in prison. These guys really thought they did something, huh? They were like, no, I did not <laughs> oh say God. that. Really? Written right here, sir. I can't. Check it out. In November of 1999, Sean Barry was sentenced to life. He was able to avoid the death penalty due to his confession and the insistence that he did not play as much of a role as the others. That's kind of how he played his defense. So he'll be eligible for parole after serving at least 40 years. So June of 2038 is when he'll first be eligible. He'll be 63 years old. He didn't have the same like racist past and motives that the other two men had. Not saying that he is any less guilty than the other men in this, just from a judicial standpoint. The other two were members of white supremacy gangs. You know, you were very... It's very obvious. It's obvious that it was a hate crime to them. Whereas while he was involved in the murder of a man, it might not have been fueled by racism. He also had his friends and family and ultimately the jury decide that he's not a future threat to society. So therefore no death penalty. Um, Russell Brewer was executed by lethal injection in September of 2011. The day before his execution, he expressed no remorse for his crime and he told KHOU 11 news in Houston. And it's funny how he tried to say like, he literally didn't do this and he didn't have any part in this. He wanted them to stop. He didn't write racist things. He wasn't white supremacist. But he told, he said to the press, as far as any regrets, no, I have no regrets. No, I'd do it all over again to tell you the truth. That's good. Vile. Vile. Ugh. I wish he was still there just rotting away. I know. But this is funny. And also, like, I hate him. But so he's also the reason why they stopped the 87-year-old tradition of giving prisoners in Texas, like, their their last meal, you know? Where you could just say, like, you want your last meal to be this. He was the reason they stopped? Dude, okay. Before his execution, his last meal that prompted the end of last meal requests in Texas included two chicken fried steaks with gravy and sliced onions, a triple patty bacon cheeseburger, a cheese omelet with ground beef, tomatoes, onions, bell peppers, and jalapenos, a bowl of fried okra, mm-hmm. a, bowl of, a bowl of fried okra with ketchup, one pound of barbecued meat with half a loaf of white bread, three fully loaded fajitas, a meat lover's pizza, one pint of bluebell vanilla ice cream, a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts on top, and three root beers. When the meal was presented, he told officials that he was not hungry, and as a result, he did not eat any of it. The meal was discarded, prompting State Senator John Whitmire to ask Texas prison officials to end the 87-year-old tradition. The agency's, the prison agency's executive director responded by stating that the practice had been terminated effective immediately. Oh, what a piece of shit. I'm good. I had a uh, heavy breakfast. I don't think I'll, <laughs> I don't think I'll need all that. Uh, so then John King was executed in 2019 and their sentences would actually mark the first time there had ever been a conviction that resulted in prison time for any individual who aided in the lynching of a black person in the state of Texas. They were the first people who ever went to prison for lynching a black person. No, yeah, I in heard Texas. that. No, I heard that. What? So fucked up. Texas. Texas yeah. I, You're behind. So let's talk about this. This case, the aftermath, the public attention it received. Uh, his family used to say that 
he would always say he was going to put Jasper, Texas on the map one day, like for music. Um, they said that never did they think it would be because of his death, which broke my heart. Yeah, that's so sad. But the Bird family did end up creating the James Bird Foundation for Racial Healing. So the goal of the foundation was to fight racially motivated hatred through education and to ultimately bring awareness to the consequences of racial hatred and bring more awareness to uh, crimes that were fueled by racial hate or crimes that were fueled by racism and, you know, hopefully to ultimately reduce the number of racially motivated crimes. In 2001, Texas signed the James Byrd hate crime bill into a law. In Texas, there had previously been no hate crime laws whatsoever before 2001. That's so weird Wyoming, I know. Wyoming had a hate crime law where Matthew Shepard lived, but it didn't protect those who were discriminated against due to sexual orientation. That doesn't make sense. They just didn't have that yet. It was Wyoming. So you might be wondering why I'm talking about these two different cases. They occurred in the same year. They were both hate crimes. But you might be wondering why I was talking about both of them together. These two cases together created the Matthew Shepard James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. So this was passed on May 22nd, 2009, and it was signed into law by Obama in October of that year. They'd been trying to get this passed for so long, so long, like since this was, since this started happening. Shouts out Obama. The law expands the 1969 federal hate crime law to also include crimes that were motivated by the victim's actual or perceived gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. So it had all the criteria for hate crimes, but it had a prerequisite that stated that the victims of the hate crimes had to be in a federally protected activity or like environment. So it could only be a hate crime if it was committed against them in a federal location. So like if they were voting or if they were going to school. Oh, that doesn't even make sense. Most hate crimes don't happen in those areas. Yeah. They happen everywhere. Yeah. They also added gender, gender identity to this. So the changes that they made, other than that, they gave the authorities greater ability to engage in investigations that like local detectives didn't feel like dealing with. They also gave $5 million a year from 2010 to 2012 to help state and local agencies pay for hate crime investigations. It also required the FBI to track statistics on hate crimes committed due to gender, gender identity. The most recent crime stats that we have are from 2019, and there were over seven 7,000 violent hate crimes in that year alone involving almost 9,000 victims. Race, religion, and sexual orientation were the top three motivations of the offenders over half were white. Just a little background at how common this is. And another thing that you have to think about is these type of crimes are not always reported. Definitely not oh, always reported. Yeah. Just because these people are hated and hurt and killed because of their differences they're just kind of fearing any type of retaliation or more danger. So they're not going to go to anyone about this. But if you or someone you know has been a victim of a hate crime, call 844-9-NO-HATE or 1-855-4-VICTIM. We'll also have some resources posted on our website. Anyone who needs it, we're going to have all the resources. And Um, so that is all from us for Pride Week. I can't believe it's about to be July. Again, thank you so much for listening to our LGBTQ plus spotlight for Pride Month. To everyone, 
Again, who's out there who is in the LGBTQ plus community? We support you. We celebrate you. We love you. And we're always here for you. Thank you so much for listening to us bring attention and awareness to hate crimes. And next week, if you are a movie buff and you're a fan of the movie Jennifer's Body, shouts out Megan Fox, then you might like this case. I know what you're talking about. Erica knows what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Oh, I'm excited. Yes, I'm very excited to dive into that with you all next week. Thank you so much for listening. Please continue to support us on all social medias. It's just at Crime on Caffeine. Our website is just CrimeOnCaffeine.com. And if you want to buy us a coffee, it's just BuyMeACoffee.com slash Crime on Caffeine. Everything is crime on caffeine we have the link trees in um the bios of our social media and it has links to like all the streaming websites it has links to buying us a coffee everything that you would ever need um so you can go check that out and if you guys please 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 i know i say this a lot but please send us a case yes send us case (laughs) recommendations i want to know what you guys want to hear like you guys are giving us such good feedback you love the cases yes you know about a lot of them so i know you know some other i know you guys are true crime you guys are true crime and i didn't know until now so tell us what cases you want us to do yes and thank you so much for listening we will be back next week (laughs) 